Welcome to Gilbert Church. It's really good to have you with us today. If you're watching online or at one of our campuses, it's great to have you with us as well. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And we're in the third week of a series called Restart because it's easy to just let one day roll into the next one without ever asking the question, how is my life going? September is actually a great time to ask that question because everything begins in September. School begins, routines kick back in, football season has begun. My fourth grade and second grade sons started a fantasy football league with their friends this year. A bunch of second graders and fourth graders doing an online fantasy football league, and they're super into it. I walked by my boy's room the other night, and I could hear them still up arguing about whether the Philadelphia Eagles' fast-paced offense will get back on track, leading to more fantasy points for someone called Nelson Agholar. I'm not sure if that leads them to a future job or a future of sitting alone at lunch, but I guess we're going to find out. Today's message is titled, Reclaim My Future. And I want to begin by asking you a question. What are your dreams for the future? When you think about your life five years from now, where would you like to be? What would you like to be doing? How about 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Some of us are like, I just want to be alive 20 years from now. It's pretty much my dream. <laughs> Others of you are thinking things like, you know, I'd like to retire in the next five to 10 years. I'd love to quit my job and open my own consulting business or expand a business. I want to get married, have kids, purchase my own house. I want to graduate high school or graduate college. What are your expectations for the future? When my wife Sarah and I were married, we took our honeymoon to an all-inclusive resort in Mexico. And part of the package was that you would meet with a travel agent when you would get there who would try to then sell you on all these different excursions. Our travel agent was named Hector, and the first excursion he tried to sell us on was swimming with the dolphins. Right away, my wife Sarah was like, oh, dolphins, they're so cute, let's do that. But then Hector told us about a jungle safari he said, you drive these four-by-four four Jeeps through the jungle out onto the beach. And right away, I'm thinking, wow, jungle, cougars, monkeys, adventure. I said, Hector, which one of these two would you choose? He said, oh, well, I'm a guy, so I'd choose the safari. And the way he said it felt like he was kind of throwing down the gauntlet a little bit. I felt slightly threatened by his comment. And so since Sarah was okay with it, we decided to do the safari. But right before we left, I said to Hector, I said, you know, I just remembered something. I haven't driven a stick shift in years. I'm not even sure I remember how. They do have automatics, right? He said, oh, of course. So we get there, and I quickly realized that Hector, the inspector, cannot be a travel agent. Can't be. He's got to be a professional con artist. Because they don't have any automatics. All stick shifts. So we had to sit in the back the entire time while a chain-smoking couple drove the entire way. And then when Hector used the word jungle, apparently what he meant by that was a bunch of bushes that come up to your knees. Because that's all this was. There was no cougars. There was no monkeys. There was no adventure. I saw an iguana on a rock. That was the highlight of the whole trip. And so as we're driving along in the back of this Jeep, bouncing up and down, trying not to take in a lifetime of secondhand smoke in 20 minutes, and staring at a bunch of bushes in the dirt, I started to dream about dolphins. 
cute, sweet, playful dolphins. And I imagined Sarah and I frolicking with these dolphins as we splashed water on one another and laughed and played with dolphins. And I resolved in that moment that if I saw Hector the tax collector at breakfast the next morning, I was poking a hole in his sombrero and pulling it down over his eyes. That's basically what he did to me. Ever get someplace in life and realize it's not where you expected to be? That's a relatively harmless feeling when you're talking about your honeymoon and a safari. But what about when you feel that way about your life? What about when you look at your life and you go, you know, I, I expected to be married for life. And today you find yourself divorced. What about when you look at your life and you go, you know, right out of college, I thought I would get this dream job that I was passionate about. And I just had to take that job because there was no other jobs available. I expected to be financially set by this point in my life. And then the stock market didn't go so well. And now I'm not really where I thought I would be. Maybe you expected to make the team, but you ended up getting cut. Where in your life have your expectations for the future not been met? Here's what I want you to see today. Even if you're not where you expected to be, you can still get where God wants you to go. I hope you see what good news that is today. That even if you're not where you expected to be in life right now, you can still get where God wants you to go. As Pastor Craig Rochelle says, every sinner has a past and every saint has a future. In other words, every single one of us, myself included, has some amount of sin, shame, or regret in our past. But there is no sin, past, present, or future, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. By the power of Christ, you can have hope. By the power of Christ, you have a future. I hope you see that today. That no matter who you are or what you have done in life, God has something for you in the future. But it doesn't just happen by wishing upon a star. It takes a restart. It takes a step. In fact, reclaiming your future isn't so much a grandiose declaration. You know, you'll hear people make these grandiose declarations and they'll say, you know, I'm going to change my whole life. I'm going to change the world. Not so much a grandiose declaration as much as it is a day-by-day -day discipline to trust and obey God no matter what. I realized this about a month ago as I was reading through the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. If, even if you're not a Bible reader or if you're kind of new to church, you've heard of the story of Joseph. It's that whole technicolor dream coat thing. But as I read through the story of Joseph recently, I realized that this is more than just a colorful robe. This story is a testament to the fact that God is in the business of restoring futures. But it starts small. It starts with a day-by-day -day discipline to trust and obey God no matter what. To set the context a little bit for this Joseph story, Joseph has 12 brothers, and they're jealous of him. They're jealous of him because they think their father favors him. He gave them that colorful robe that you've heard about. And one day, Joseph has a dream, and he makes the mistake of telling his brothers the contents of this dream. Look at what the dream was. Joseph said this, listen to this dream, Joseph announced. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. My bundle stood up, and then your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before it. So his brothers say, so you're going to be our king, are you? His brothers taunted, and they hated him. 
all the more for his dream and what he had said. So God gives Joseph this vision of his future. It's a picture of what's going to happen in his life. His brothers are going to bow down to him. Now, obviously, this is a dream very specific to Joseph. Most of us don't receive a vision of our future that's so detailed from God. But I do want to pause here and ask you, what is your vision for your life? When your life here on earth is all said and done, what do you think will be important to you in that moment? A while back, my wife took our four kids to her grandparents' 80th birthday party in Wisconsin, and I had to speak here on the weekend, so I stayed home. And I'll tell you, it was weird to be in a quiet house. If you have kids, you know what this is like. I'm used to, Dad, watch this. Dad, tie my shoes. Dad, where's my football pants? Dad, can I shave my butt? (laughs) One of my kids asked me that a few weeks ago, and I'm like, you don't need to. And I don't, no, no, you're not doing that. Sorry. (laughs) But it was this moment of quiet around my house. And it offered me this uninterrupted time to just pray to God. So I got up one morning and I began to pray. And I began to think about this question, what is my vision for my life? And right away I thought of this picture of being on my deathbed. If I'm lucky enough to live that long, that's probably where it will end. And I thought my wife will be there, my kids will be there, their spouses will be there. And in that moment, what will be important to me? Right away, I started writing things down. I wrote down that my kids' names would be written in the book of life. I mean, I want to know that my kids have put their faith in Christ and that heaven is in their future. I then wrote down that my kids would have a godly spouse, such an important relationship. I want someone who's going to pull them towards God and not away from him. I wrote down that my kids would serve God, not that they need to be a pastor, but that they would serve God in some way with their life. I want my wife to be joyful. Hope she's grateful for our time married together. And then I had this other picture of a Thanksgiving. And I pictured that my kids were all grown up and they were coming home with their own families. And it was this sense of peace and joy in my house. And I thought, when it's all said and done, those are the kinds of things that are going to be important to me. Now, those two things may never happen. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, but if you don't have a vision for your desired future, how will you ever get there? Too many people can't reclaim their future because they don't have a vision of what they want their future to look like in the first place. It's kind of like the young man that author Charles Swindoll encountered one day. Swindoll asked this man what was meant to be a profound question. He said, where are you headed? And this young guy looked at him and he said, to lunch? Not the answer Swindoll was expecting. But that's how it is for some people. No vision, no direction, no thoughts about the future. They're just headed to Chipotle. They're just headed to a party on Friday night to try to hook up with somebody. Just going home to play Minecraft. No vision, no direction, no thoughts about the future. Look what the Bible says about this in Proverbs 29. It says this, where there is no vision... The people perish. Where there's no vision, the people perish. If you don't have a vision for your life, you don't have any direction. And if you don't have any direction, you don't have a purpose. And without a purpose, you will perish. 
Some of us need to get along with God this week, and we begin to ask God this question, God, what is your vision for my life? When my life here on earth is all over, what will be important to me? This brings me back to Joseph. Because after Joseph has this vision for his life, guess what? His brothers sell him into slavery. So much for his vision, apparently. He gets sold to an Egyptian man named Potiphar. And Potiphar quickly realizes that Joseph is successful in whatever he does. So he puts him in charge of all of his affairs. And that's where we'll pick things up in chapter 39. It says this. Now Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And about this time, Potiphar's wife began to desire him to sleep with her. But Joseph refused. How could I ever do such a wicked thing, he said. It would be a great sin against God. Notice Joseph's reasoning here. It would be a great sin against God. Friends, you can justify almost any sin. I mean, you can say, you know, it's not going to hurt anyone else. Everybody at my school is doing this. She wasn't paying attention to me. He's not meeting my needs. You can justify almost any sin that you want. But Joseph says this would be a great sin against God. He knew that giving in to this one temptation would ruin his future. I was on ESPN.com a couple of months ago, and the number one story was about a guy named Alden Smith. Smith used to be the linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers. He had just been picked up for his third DUI. This one included a hit-and-run charge with it as well. He was immediately released by the 49ers and lost his entire $9.6 million a year salary. Second story on ESPN.com. So I'm just scrolling down on one day. The second story was about Norwood Teague. Teague was the former athletic director for the University of Minnesota. He was forced to resign from his position when it was found that he had sexually harassed two female coworkers. Teague later stated that he had had too much to drink. Lost his job. Lost his reputation lost his entire $500,000 a year salary. Those are just the two top stories for one day on ESPN.com, both about men whose futures was significantly set back. Now, you might hear that and you might think, oh, well, that would never happen to me. I mean, that's an athlete. That's a higher education type. I mean, typical. But notice the similarities here. Both of these men were successful, probably more successful than many of us will become in our chosen field. Both of them were smart people, and yet they lost it all. Why? Alcohol abuse? Sexual sin? In fact, how could someone like Alden Smith, who already had two DUIs, how could he drink and drive again, knowing it would cost him his entire salary? How could someone like Norwood Teague forego his reputation as one of the best athletic directors in the country? It doesn't make any logical sense. And it doesn't make logical sense. Because, friends, there are some desires that are common to all of us that override a person's logic. I mean, let's be honest. You can make mistakes in multiple areas of life, and your future is secure. You can put too much fertilizer on your yard in August. You'll keep your marriage, okay? Your yard's going to look terrible. But you will keep your marriage. Kids will respect you. You'll have a future. Alcohol abuse. Sexual sin, those are different. Those are future killers. 
If you find those starting to gain a foothold in your heart, you've got to get rid of them instead of just trying to sweep them away. This past summer, my wife and I took our four kids to a family camp in Wisconsin. And the cabin we were in was pretty rustic. It was kind of off the beaten path. It had no central air, and so it was stifling hot. In fact, one of the first nights that we were there, Sarah and I were sitting out on a screen porch when a mouse tried to poke his head through a hole in the screen porch door and start coming into our cabin. Thankfully, my 16-year-old girl's scream spooked him. He was like, whoa, took off. The next day, we got back to our cabin, and my daughter goes, something just ran into my room. It was a chipmunk. I quickly devised a plan. I said to Sarah, I said, you go in after the chipmunk. That was the plan. No, really. My plan was that she would go in and flush the chipmunk out, and then I could stand right outside the door with a broom. And as the chipmunk came out, my plan was I would slap shot it right out the door. And I even opened up the outside door, hopefully that I would get a good slap shot and send him right back out into the woods. Now, Sarah did her part. I mean, she went in, she flushed that chipmunk right out. I did not perform well under pressure. <laughs> I got really happy feet, I got a little jittery, and the chipmunk ran right past me into the bathroom. So I just shut the door. I didn't know what else to do. I locked him in the bathroom. I thought, we'll go potty in the woods, you can sit on my toilet, okay? We'll just trade spaces with one another. We actually did call maintenance, and they got the chipmunk out a little bit later, and then they upgraded us to a hotel-like room with central air. And so our family now affectionately refers to that chipmunk as the chipmunk sent by God. <laughs> but here's my point. If you have a chipmunk in your house, you don't just sweep it under the couch. You don't just pretend it's not there. You don't put it in the bathroom and hope it disappears the next time you open up the door. You do everything you can to get rid of it because it's not going away on its own. Alcohol abuse, sexual sin, they're the exact same way. If you find them running rampant around your heart and around your life right now, don't just try to, try to sweep them under the couch. Don't just try to pretend that they're not an issue. I'll hear people say all the time, well, you know, I could quit anytime I want to. I don't think it's a big deal that I look at that. I mean, I'm, I'm not married, or I am married, but what's the harm? Friends, if you find yourself thinking those things, saying those things, you are in a dangerous place. Your future is at stake. You have got to call maintenance. You've got to call for help. Check yourself in. Get an accountability partner. We've got a ministry here at church called Quest 180, and you can stop off at the information desk as you leave your campus today for more information. It's an addiction recovery ministry and a sexual addiction recovery ministry. But here's what I want you to know. You can recover. You can have a future. But you've got to sweep those future killers away. In Joseph's case, you would think that after he resists this temptation that everything would go great in his life. Not so much. In fact, one night, Potiphar's wife comes in. She grabs Joseph by the shirt and she says, sleep with me. Apparently, she didn't struggle to express her desires. What does Joseph do? Does he flirt? Does he say, well, let me think about if I can get away with this? No, he flees. He runs. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins that a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's how you resist sexual temptation. You flee. You run in the other direction. In, po- in Joseph's case, after he physically runs away from Potiphar's wife, she reaches out and grabs onto part of his shirt, and it rips off in her hand. Look at what she does next. It's unbelievable. She says, she began sp- screaming. Soon all the men in the place came running. My husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to insult us, she sobbed. He tried to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard my loud cries, he ran and left part of his shirt behind. Potiphar hears this and he's furious. He throws Joseph in prison. Now Joseph's in prison for a crime that he didn't even commit. But look at what it says in the very next verse. But the Lord was with Joseph there too. I read that verse in my devotion about a month ago and I underlined these two words, there too. I love that. Where do you need to hear those two words today? Maybe you just started school this fall and you're having some conflict with friends, and you're feeling a little bit left out, you need to know that at school, the Lord is with you there too. Maybe for you, you've lost a loved one. You have had some health issues yourself, or one of your kids is really struggling in life. You need to hear today that the Lord is with you there too. Those two words have the power to transform any circumstance that you're in. Because if you know that God is with you, you can get through anything. I was recently listening to Pastor Joel Johnson, and he was talking about how God is a God of the zigzag. Let me try to explain what he meant by this. Point A represents where you are right now. And point B represents where you will be one day in the future. Most of us kind of expect that God's going to take us on a straight line, point A to point B. But here's the reality. God often takes us on a zigzag-like course. Just take Joseph as an example. God tells Joseph, your brothers are going to bow down to you. We're going to see a little bit later, that happens. We know that. We have a leather-bound Bible. Joseph didn't have that. He was living it. He was in the middle of it. In fact, look at what the Bible says a little bit later in Genesis 41 about Joseph's time in prison. It says this, two years later. He was in prison for over two years. And he's going, God, what happened? Why aren't my brothers bowing down to me? It was a zigzag and a long one at that. But that's nothing. Take the Israelites, for example. God told them that he was going to bring them to the promised land. When he told them this, they were about 300 miles away which was an eight to 10 day journey in ancient times. How long did it take the Israelites to get to the promised land? 40 years. Here's a map of the route that they ended up taking. Not a straight line. It was a zigzag. Now all this raised the question, why? Why does God take our lives on zigzag-like routes and not straight lines? I mean, why not tell Joseph, hey, your brothers are gonna bow down to you And two weeks later, they're bowing. Why not tell the Israelites, pack your things, you're going to the promised land, and eight to ten days later, camels roll in. Why the zigzag? Here's why. Because the ability to trust God is developed in zigzags, not in straight lines. Your ability to trust God with your life, 
your ability to have faith in God is not developed in the easy straight lines. It's developed in the zigzags of life. When your boyfriend or girlfriend, who you thought was the one, breaks up with you, that's when you have to trust God. When you don't get a position that you had hoped for at work or when you get removed from a position that you loved, that's when you have to trust God. But here's the thing. When you're in the middle of these zigzags, it's miserable. It's miserable. Point B looks like an impossibility. You start thinking to yourself, you know what? I guess we're just not going to have kids. I mean, I dreamed of having kids. I, I hoped of having kids, but it just doesn't look like that's going to happen. guess I'm not going to get married. I mean, I, I hoped that I would, but you just can't see point B, and it's a terrible place to be. But years later, two years, 12 years, 20 years, then you look back and you see God's hand all over it. And you realize that sometimes the zigzag is the best way to go. For the Israelites, there was a war taking place right on their straight line. They didn't know that, but God knew that. Sometimes the zigzag is the best way to go. Right after I graduated from Bethel University, I took a job as a youth pastor. And for the first five years or so, I loved it. But then around year five, I started to dream about something else. Middle school all-nighters with a bunch of 13-year-olds hopped up on Red Bull will do that to you, okay? We should just start torturing people that way. Just here's, here's your punishment. Go to a middle school all-nighter. See, what, see if you can handle it. So after about five years or so, I started to dream about something else. And so I applied for a position as a senior pastor at a church in Maple Grove of about 100 people. Didn't even get an interview. I mean, didn't even get a phone call. Then I applied for a job at a church in Woodbury. And I got an interview, but my answer to the first question made the head of the board look like she had just sucked on a Sour Patch Kid. I mean, as I'm answering the question, she was like... <laughs> I'm like, okay, apparently I'm not going to get this job. I mean, the next 20 minutes were a total waste. And I was so discouraged. So discouraged. Think about that. I had five years of experience. was an above-average communicator. I couldn't even get an interview at a church of 100 people. But God knew something that I didn't know. And God could see something that I could not see. And God knew that my leadership and my character needed to be stretched, which they were over those next two years like never before. I faced problems that I had never faced before. And after two years, I apply for a job at this church and I get a dream job. God knew something that I didn't know. Look what the Bible says in Romans 5.3. It says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. We can rejoice when we run into zigzags in life. Why? Because we know that they're good for us. They help us learn to endure. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident expectation of salvation. And this expectation will not disappoint us, for we know how dearly God loves us. Let me ask you, where are you in a zigzag-like situation right now? Where in your life are you looking at it and going, I, know, I guess we're just not going to get to point B? I want you to hear today that God loves you dearly. You will not be disappointed if you trust in him. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to get to your point B. If your point B is not the same as God's point B, you're not getting to your point B. But here's the good news. God's point B is always better than your point B. See, sometimes we get tunnel vision. 
and we go, God, that's my dream for the future. And if I don't get that position, or if I don't get that person, or if I don't get that whatever in life, well, then I'm just not going to be fulfilled and happy. And God's going, you know what? That won't bring you as much joy as you think it would. When you trust in me, you will not be disappointed. Joseph wasn't. God orchestrates Joseph's release from prison. He goes on to become the second most powerful official in all of Egypt. Under his leadership, they store up enough grain during seven prosperous years so that they have enough during seven years of famine. So bad was this famine that people from the surrounding region began to come to Egypt to get grain, including Joseph's 12 brothers. When they arrive in Egypt, they bow down to the head official, not realizing it was Joseph. God's vision for Joseph's life had become a reality. Not everybody was thrilled. Joseph's brothers are terrified. They think that Joseph is going to have them executed. But look at what Joseph says to his brothers. And this is the money quote in the whole story. It's one of the best examples in the Bible of trusting in God's control. Joseph says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Here's a guy who was sold into slavery, ripped away from his family, put in prison for a crime that he never even committed, and he looks back on it and he says, God, you intended that for my good. Where do you need to say those words today in your life? Where do you need to look at something that you're going through right now and you're going, God, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I'm on a zigzag-like course. But God, I'm going to trust that you are intending this for my good. That's how you reclaim your future. You do what Joseph did. You ask God to give you a vision for your life. Not talking about what neighborhood to live in or what job to take, but when your life here on earth is over, what will be important to you? Ask God to give you that vision. And then obey God. Even if some woman comes up to you, grabs you by the shirt and says, sleep with me, which that's not going to happen, by the way, okay? <laughs> Settle down. But no, even if a woman comes up and does that, you say, you know what? My relationship with God is so much more important to me. I'm going to obey him. And then you trust. You trust. Even in the zigzags of life, you trust that God is in control. Years ago, there was an old hymn. Some of you remember this. It just says this. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Where do you need to trust? Where do you need to obey? Reclaiming your future is not so much a grandiose declaration as much as it is a day-by-day trust and obey. You trust and obey God today, and then you do it tomorrow, and then you do it the next day and the day after that, and you will reclaim your future. Let's all stand as we close together in prayer. God, I pray for that person here who came to church today and felt hopeless. Felt like there wasn't a whole lot in their future. And so, God, I pray that these words today and the power of your spirit working in their life can help them reclaim their future. And that they would walk out of here knowing that there's hope 
and that you have something for them in the days ahead. And God, I pray for those of us who are on a zigzag-like course right now, and we don't get it and we don't understand why, but I pray for the supernatural ability to trust in you, God, to trust that you're in control and that you will not disappoint us if we trust in you. God, help us trust. Help us obey. And God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.